this is Nancy Fulton, and I'd like to welcome you to um, tonight's event with Christine uh, Jo Lee. And, and tonight she's going to be talking about um, some specific tips for those making two to ten million dollar films. So, um, with your permission, uh, Christine, I would like to go ahead and uh, have you start by introducing yourself and sort of talk a little bit about your background and how you came to uh, work as a line producer. Um, as you do these days. All right, well, thank you for having me um, and welcome everyone. Uh, I actually began my career a little differently than most. Uh, I began my career in the legal profession over 20 years ago. Uh, I started in a top five litigation firm uh, in Phoenix, specializing in civil litigation, intellectual property, and corporate law. And then I served in the internal legal department for ING, which is a top 20 global fortune 500 company in the mutual funds division in the internal legal department there. Um, and my tenure did include the uh, global market crash of 2008, which was a very interesting time. Uh, simultaneously, uh, I balanced my need for a creative outlet through acting and voiceover pursuits. Uh, and the combination of those things ultimately launched my career on a path of producing. Uh, I then moved to Los Angeles and founded my own production company, Cinematic Artistry, in 2009. And since then, I've traveled all over the country producing and line producing television shows, commercials, music videos, and feature films. Uh, transitioning from the legal industry to the entertainment industry was not without its challenges. Um, but I'm very grateful for that legal background. Um, having that experience to draw from has been absolutely invaluable. And honestly, I don't know how any other producer does it without it. I use that knowledge every single day. Um, a lot of producing relies on uh, a solid business and legal foundation. Um, everything from negotiating and drafting contracts, of which there are many in producing a feature film, to navigating through the rules and the procedures for governmental agencies and labor unions. Um, it really has helped me to foresee the things that are coming, um, to be able to navigate through, um, achieve compliance, and avoid issues before they occur. Um, production time is, as you know, incredibly expensive and delays due to errors can become very costly very fast. Um, so the value of proper preparation and being able to foresee things and avoid them happening in the first place uh, cannot be understated. Mm -hmm. it's a, um, when I looked into your background, one of the things that I noticed is that uh, you have sort of worked on the gamut of films from uh, just a, a wide range of films at a wide range of budgets and um, are when you work with people who are transitioning and I think it's a common transition when you're working with people who transition from uh, under two million dollar films to over two million dollar films are there specific kinds of or patterns of mistakes that they make because they don't understand the different, um, they've moved into a different level of production. Absolutely. Um, the biggest one 
being that in the indie guerrilla style under two million uh, kind of world, you deal a lot with non-union crews. Mm -hmm. um, you may not be able to avoid SAG, you're probably going union, you know, even at that level to get the talent that you want and the level and caliber of talent that you're looking for. But more often than not, you're going non-union on your crew. And when you jump up to a higher production value, you are not going to be able to go non-union on your crew. And there's a lot of unions out there. There's the WGA, there's the DGA, there's IATSE, there's Teamsters, you know, all those come into play. And immediately your costs go up, the value of what you're getting on screen goes down. Um, and if you, what I see, the, big, the biggest mistake I see is people trying to launch a production thinking they're going to be able to pull it off non-union and getting caught and getting flipped mid-production. And that is the most devastating thing that can happen to a film. Um, being able to accept that from the beginning, properly plan for it from the start is a whole lot less devastating than getting flipped mid-production. Mm -hmm. So what, so what you're saying is when it, it, when you say flip, what you're saying is that somebody's raised money and they said the film was going to cost, you know, $2.5 million because that's what they decided and they thought they could get away without the Teamsters or without Yahtzee or whatever. And then that somebody makes a phone call and all of a sudden somebody's, your production gets stopped because you've got non-union people doing union jobs. When that ha it, can that happen even if you're not signatory? I mean, like, do I have an obligation to work with the Yahtzee or do I have an obligation to work with um, the Teamsters if, if I haven't signed their contracts? That's exactly who they're targeting is the non-signatories. Um, what you, Your biggest weakness and what I see happen all the time is that they want the better caliber crew. They want the great DP that's going to pull off the best look for them that is already a union member and try to get them to work non-union on the production without anybody finding out, you know, or the first AD or whoever and whatnot. Um, and then the union finds out. And when you have a union worker that's working non-union on your film, um, then you're really at risk for getting flipped. Um, Does that mean that they pull the, the union guy off and say, if you continue to work on this production, we're going to ter terminate your relationship with the union? Or do they come in and strike your set or what? Like, what do they do? A number of things can happen, and it depends on how bad the infractions are and how bad they want your film. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a, a lot of union members, um, pretty much you're going to need to sign a contract. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's really not a matter of if it's a matter of what mm -hmm. and when um they definitely can make troubles for the crew they definitely can make troubles for the production um uh they can organize the non-union members uh and uh get them to join the union as well and to band together they can formulate strikes um they can play very dirty when they strike, um, doing anything and everything they can to impede your production, if your production is still going, um, to try and make it impossible for you to finish the film. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that they do that are not necessarily <laughs> the nicest things, but do achieve their purpose. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's, 
it's a very bad situation. And usually when you wind up in that situation, the very first thing you want to do is call an attorney. Um, you're going to need help negotiating that contract. If you're in a situation where you're getting flipped, you need an attorney fast that, that knows what they're doing because those contracts actually are negotiable. I mean, they make it seem as though they're boilerplate and this is a standard contract, take it or leave it. But those contracts are negotiable. Um, and if you're getting flipped mid-production, um, you have quite a bit of leverage uh, to be able to negotiate away things like they, could, they can make the production flip from uh, retroactively from the start of prep. Uh, and you don't want that. You know? So you want to negotiate away and try and start you know, the flip you know, when you sign the contract, you know, midway through, not retroactively. Mm -hmm. so it's going to cost you a whole lot more, obviously. Um, I was on a production that was flipped. That was a distant hire situation where we were out in the middle of nowhere and the majority of our crew were not locals. So, you know, that, that a lot of rules came into play that increased costs immediately when you've got a local hire or non-union crew, you're paying them from the time, you know, the, they show up on set where the, what the call time is and you're stopping the clock when they're dismissed from set. Not true. If they're on a distant hire, then you've got portal to portal. You're paying them all the way from the hotel back to the hotel again. So now your 12 hour day just became a 13 hour day or 14 hour day, you know, and they're into, you know, golden time you know, on that return trip or you're cutting down, you know, your shoot hours in order to make sure that you're within the 12, you know, from portal to portal, which ordinarily you can't do. Your schedule's already set. Um, but the non-union crew, you know, it's, it's very advantageous for them on a flip. Ordinarily to get into the union, um, you have to amass a certain number of hours and that takes a, a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And getting into the union is a goal for many crew members. Mm -hmm. uh, if they are on a production that gets flipped, then the Taft-Hartley comes into play. Oh. And then they get an instant ticket in. So, yeah, well, well, a lot of times... Everybody has an incentive at that point to turn you in. In other words, there's a reason yeah. to become more attractive as a target to, to be flipped or to have, to have the, the unions brought in because now they can actually get admitted into the union, which is handy for actors, or ha actually handy across all the, across the board. Mm -hmm. For all of the way across the board. People are gonna get an increase in pay, they're gonna get an increase in benefits, um, they'll get into the union if they weren't in the union, they'll get their you know, union hours if, if they are in the union, you know, that goes towards their you know, pension and health, all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, on the distant hire, they got portal to portal, they got, you know, per diem, all kinds of things that, you know, they weren't getting before uh, that radically in increased their pay. Um, and I, do, I wouldn't fault them for that. I mean, you know, I mean, they got to look out for themselves. I, I, everyone understands that. Um, but the cumulative total when you're talking about a crew of 30, 40 people adds up very quickly. Um, and more often than not, you don't have that much contingency. Right. Also, you made a deal with the, with the investors. It's going to cost X amount. And you just doubled your budget instantaneously. So that's, that's mm -hmm. like the kind of thing. So that seems like the kind of thing 
that one of the reasons why it's critical to make sure that you get um, your budget right right from the beginning. And I yes. guess the other thing I wanted to, to mention um, and ask you about is, so you are you are a um, you are a line producer, not a UPM. In fact, so if you were thinking about the structure of a of a, a production, an over two million dollar production, or you normally would have. Um, a line producer and then usually below them you would have a uh, UPM so you would be super you'd be su creating and supervising the budget from the very beginning all the way through post-production and just you know all the way up to distribution whereas the UPM would normally have his you would have a um, the UPM would be working from pre-production to the end of post uh, sorry end of production mm-hmm and the wrap, but would not be working. You'd have a, su a production supervisor, a post-production supervisor that would be working in um, after the footage was captured. So the line producer goes from beginning to end with the, with the producer in effect, whereas a UPM would normally stop work. A DGA UPM would normally stop work when the film wraps. Is that correct? Did I have that, did I understand that correctly? Every project is different um, and it depends on the budget of the project and it depends on the needs of the producers if uh, you're just coming in as a line producer and you're not a producer slash line producer um, then it's very possible that you would start you know you're always going to start before the UPM mm -hmm. um, frequently you know in the development stage if not very early be before you know, pre-production officially starts, you're going to be on board. Um, and then sometimes a line producer's job can end at the same time as a UPM at wrap and they move on. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely if you're a, a producer slash line producer, you're going to be in there from cradle to grave, mm -hmm. uh, from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, but every single project is different depending on the funding and the needs. Mm -hmm. But yeah, working, uh, line producers and UT UPMs, I mean, a lot of people don't understand the difference or they think they're the same thing. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, <laughs> you know, especially when you get into the lower budget categories, frequently there's not one of each. It's one position and somebody is handling both. Well, if you're non-union, if you're non-union and you're not working with the DGA, then you can't have, even if you have somebody who's qualified to be called a UPM, but it's not DGA signatory, then you don't have the ability, you have to call it a line producer. That guy's job gets called no. a producer or? No, if you've, got a, if you've got a UPM that's not DGA and you're trying to avoid using the word UPM um, in order, you know, to keep out of the purview of the DGA somehow that by just calling them something different. You usually call them a production manager. Okay. A line producer is always a line producer. Mm -hmm. A line producer um, is above the line. Mm -hmm. And that's a position that's recognized and under the guild of the PGA, which I'm a member, um, the Producers Guild of America. And then a UPM is below the line and they're under the purview of the DGA if they're union at all. Uh, so they are actually very different, um, but they do work together. Uh, they're, I mean, your UPM 
is your best friend. Mm -hmm. They are <laughs> absolutely shoulder to shoulder throughout the production with you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up <laughs> because so many people don't understand the difference. Um, because like I said, on, on low budget productions, frequently there is no UPM and you've got a line producer that's doing both. And so, you know, the lines become non-existent and it leads to some of the confusion as to why people think it's synonymous. But once you get up into this category that we're talking about, as far as the two to 10 million, you are absolutely going to have the two positions and you're going to need the two positions. Um, you know, when, when the line producer starts, they're going to create the budget. Um, they're going to know that budget inside now. Um, and they are going to be in charge of that budget, um, for the entire time. Uh, a lot of changes are going to happen from the preliminary budget to the shooting budget, but hopefully by the time you start shooting and by the time you've brought the PM on, you've locked that budget. And then in some cases, uh, some line producers would give that locked budget to the UPM. And then the UPM is going to take that and look at each line item and see all of the elements that you've marked that you want them to secure. And they're going to be your soldier in the field. And they're going to run out and they're going to get you those things. And they know that they have to stay at or under that line item the way you've put it in there. If you've said that you have $6,000 for this item, then they need to go out and they need to find options that are 6,000 or below uh, um, and come back to you with those and make a decision. Um, if it can't be done, then they need to report that back. Um, but the decision-making and the analytics are always done by the line producer and only the line producer gets back into the budget and makes any changes and moves anything around. Um, and decides whether to approve or deny a particular request. Um, sometimes uh, some line producers for various reasons will never give the budget to the UPM. Um, and there's various reasons for that. Sometimes it's just uh, the line producer's preference. That's the way that they work. Um, it may be the relationship between the line producer, and the UPM, or it may be orders from above. It, may just be a mandate from the producers and the EPs that the budget never go outside the producer's circle. Uh, and so in that case, the line producer is just gonna tell the UPM line item by line item, I need you to get me X and I have Y to spend. Mm -hmm. and they never get to see the whole picture. Mm -hmm. um, but regardless of whether they get to see the budget or they don't get to see the budget, um, they don't get to change the budget mm -hmm. ever. <laughs> they do have to, they have to bring that back to the line producer and the line producer does the, does the analysis on it and they decide what's going to be done and they make the changes accordingly. Um, and, the, and usually your, your UPM is finding things like equipment, unit supplies, um, crew, those kinds of things. So you're not going to have your UPM going out and getting you, you know, your above the line talent. That's, that's not something that's ever going to be delegated to your UPM. <laughs> you know, they're going to handle most of the stuff that it is required below the line and that is logistics that are needed for that production to run smoothly. And then there's another division that happens once the production actually begins. And that is that your UPM is the one that is always going to be on set. Mm -hmm. They are there and they are the front man that 
is going to handle all of the little fires and all of the little issues and deal with all of the crew running up. I need this, I need that, or this isn't working or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to report that back. The line producer may or may not go to set. It depends on the line producer and it depends on the project. They may stay entirely in the production office the entire time and actually never go to set and just have things reported back to them by the UPM um, or other people on the set like the AD and you know, the football, uh, <laughs> which comes at the end of the night. <laughs> the line producer is in charge of running all of the staff in the production office as well. And in a, a budget of this size, you're going to have a full production office. So you're going to have an entire team back there that's going to include, you know, your, your coordinator, um, your production coordinator, your assistant production coordinator, um, you know, your your accountant, your PAs for the office and whatnot, um, all of that crew needs to be run by the line producer and everything needs to be kept going smoothly back back home. Um, so they're, at the they're the ones, the, the line producer is the one that you're going to be turning to, to to make sure that when all is said and done, the all of the, like, let's see, if you were trying to, if, you're, if you said that you're going to try to get rebates or incentives, the line producer is going to make be the one that's keeping track of those costs, and they're the ones who are going to make. They're going to be working with the production accountant to make sure that the cash flow is coming in on the right timetable to make it so you can make the payroll so that production doesn't get stopped. And they're going to be the ones that are making sure that the wire transfers are going to be coming in so that you can mm-hmm. have all the logistics for from the investors. And they're also the ones who are looking um, in case there's going to be a problem. They're the ones looking two weeks out, so they're the ones that can figure. Yes. If we're gonna, if we have to wind things down or, or sort of mothball everything for five minutes, this is when and how we're gonna make that happen. Mm-hmm. But because, so it's not just a total crash and burn. And also, are you does the line producer have to deal with the unions if they get mad? For the most part, are they the ones? Absolutely. Who- yeah, yeah. Your line producer is your orchestrator. They're the ones that are looking out ahead. They're the ones that are dealing with a lot of things that nobody ever hears about. Mm-hmm. And nobody should hear about. When you have to bury somebody, you know, that accidentally happens not to be as alive as they were when we started. <laughs> <laughs> what happens in the production office stays in the production <laughs> office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, your, your, your PM is never going to deal with your incentives and your rebates and all that kind of thing that's that's not ever going to touch the upm the only way that that touches the upm is through a line item we have x amount to spend and it's earmarked that this has to be a local procurement this has to be you know a local equipment this has to be a local hire whatever the case may be to comply with these regulations um and uh, and they're they're going to enact that Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the it's the line producers that's that's going to tag all those things. Um, so um, oh. rebates and incentives are are kind of a big thing. Do we want to go into that? <laughs> Let's go. I think um, I think it's a big enough topic that we should sort of. Uh, and I think it's a kind of thing we should delve into that. I think a lot of people are very interested in that, mm-hmm. and that starts way back in the budgeting process and way back in the development process Mm -hmm. um and it's a very attractive thing to investors um everybody wants to put those in 
the budget right away as a preliminary budget item to attract investors. And investors love to see that. I mean, who doesn't like to see that? And you know you're going to be able to stretch your money as far as it can go and you're gonna get money back. I mean, that sounds great. That all sounds great. The problem is that, you know, while on the surface that sounds brilliant, there's, there's a lot more to it. And there's a lot to consider and be aware of um, before you put that in a budget. And you definitely can't be telling your investor um, that you're going to get that because it's not ever going to be certain at that stage that you're going to get that. You're not going to know until after production is long gone, the tents are gone, the trucks are gone, everybody's gone, whether you got it or not, or how much you got. Um, and, you know, you do want to do research ahead of time. These are, these are state-run programs, okay? So just understand, this is not a federal program. These are state-by-state, state, so there's no uniformity whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, not all states offer them, and every single state is going to be different. Mm -hmm. So, And it's not going to be possible in the preliminary budget stage when you're trying to decide what to go for to do, you know, if all 50 states had them, 50 different budgets to figure out which one you want. You know, you're going you, – that's – that's really outside the realm of what anybody can afford to do is to do that many different variations of budgets to try and decide. But you are going to do a bunch of preliminary research based on, you know, other factors, you know, geography or, you know, things that, the health, you, know, that, that the health, you know. The health of the state is like a big one. Like, because remember, like one of the things that's interesting is the state has to approve that you were talking yes. The state has to approve it, and the states, um, most states, and I'm going to speak in general terms here because, as I just said, they, they're all different, but most states do have caps on those programs, um, and there's a lot more projects applying for those programs than they have funding to award, so it's highly competitive, and you can't, most, most states, you can't take a script and a project in for approval in the development stage. You're not gonna be able to submit that project even to get into the competition for those funds until you're actually funded and actually greenlit and have a production date. And you need to be able to comply with rules like, you know, almost all of them have a rule that you've gotta start production, do a significant item that counts as starting production within that calendar year that you're first awarded your incentives. So you, you gotta be good to go. So when you're out there trying to find investment money, there's zero way that you can already have it and tell your investor that you are using incentives and you're getting rebates um, because you cannot know that at that point. You can't even know that at the point that you win the lottery and get approved mm -hmm. because there's a whole lot of rules and regulations and deadlines and, and all kinds of things in the statutes that you, you've got to be really up on and, and, and meet. There's minimum thresholds for spending. Um, I mean, the, remember, the whole purpose of these programs is to generate income for that state. That's what it's for. So, you know, you're not going to be able to go to, we'll pick on Mississippi, um, say Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just talking off the top of my head here. You're going to go to Mississippi and bring all your equipment and all your crew and all your talent and everything from LA and, and use that program mm -hmm. because that's not benefiting the people from Mississippi. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to spend in Mississippi and you've got to hire Mississippi people. Um, 
you know, and, and each, each state is going to have a different threshold of those requirements and you're going to have to be really up on that. And if you don't meet those minimum thresholds, um, your entire project in the end could get disqualified, even though you were approved in the beginning. If you can't at the end prove up enough receipts and enough spending to have met all of those, then you run the risk of your entire project being disqualified and not receiving a cent. And understand too that at the end of that process, it's not just submit your receipts and, and it all adds up and you're good to go. No, there's there's a lot of overhead and there's a lot of operational costs that go into you know facilitating one of these programs. And at the end of one of these, one of the things that most states are going to have to you're going to have to comply with is you're going to need to hire a approved CPA uh, and pay for that. And that's usually going to be a CPA from their state mm -hmm. um, and possibly even pay for the auditor within their own you know, department as well. And they're all going to review the receipts and the expenses that you put in mm -hmm. and guaranteed mm -hmm. a bunch is going to get tossed out and it's going to be disallowed. Um, so if you're just aiming to meet those minimums, you are going to fail. You have to aim to surpass those minimums by enough that even if they're super aggressive at throwing out receipts, you're still going to hit, hit those minimums and you're still going to be okay. And you don't know that until the very, very end. So when you're going out and you're getting investor money and, you, and you're trying to say, we're going to go for these incentives and we're going to shoot in this state, the thing that you need to understand is that you need to really qualify what you're saying um, and you can't promise that you're going to get those. You want to collect all of the funding that you're going to need to complete that project without the incentives. And then if that money comes in, it's a happy day for everybody and it's a bonus. Um, but you can't, you shouldn't, it's, a, it's not safe and prudent practice to rely on those incentives as necessary funding to complete the project. Because if you don't get them, you're, you're dead in the water and you can't finish. Mm -hmm. And that's why you always hear about people asking for finishing funds for projects because they just didn't, they might not have known or that even just getting the money in on a timely in a timely situation can be difficult and so not all states i think michigan has been particularly exciting in its relationship with uh oh i don't know if it, what it's like these days but i remember i remember in the 2005 2006 2007 they had an aggressive 40 percent rebate program but i heard that it was not always easy to actually make sure that you were going to take in you're not going to get paid that much even though that it was pretty much a blanket 40 percent rebate so i think um one of the reasons I think it's necessary, like you, like you've indicated, one of the reasons it's necessary to work with a um, line producer from the very beginning, from the beginning budgeting um, process. When you're doing a film that's more than two million dollars, is one of the reasons you need that is because you're going to be dealing with these issues from then, from the beginning of the production, so long after the pro project is finished. It's not the money issues don't disappear particularly if you're working with state rebates. It's, that's because you're involving a whole state worth of bureaucracy. <laughs> in your you are. And like I said, there's a lot of operational costs that go into you know, trying to comply with those programs throughout production. It adds a lot of burden to the production office and you're going to have to staff up and there's a lot of extra work to be done. Um, 
before, during, and after in order to try and implement that and, and collect on that. And so you do want to do an analysis of that before you go for it because a lower budget production, it might not be worth it. The operational costs plus the risk, it might not even be worth it to, to try for it. Um, don't forget too that if you're going to do something like that, it's usually not in your home state. You're usually going somewhere else to take advantage of, you know, an extremely attractive looking state incentive elsewhere. Um, and so you're traveling people there. Um, and invariably, if you're not doing California and you want name talent and you want theatrical release, which in this budget level you're going to have, your name talent is not going to live in, you know, <laughs> wherever um, they're going to get flown in from from LA and so you're going to have extra travel costs and you're going to have extra accommodations and you're going to have extra distant higher pay and you're going to have to pay whole days and you're going to have to pay per diem and all those things add up mm -hmm. and you need to factor that in um, before you make the decision of whether it's even worthwhile to go for it so if you're talking to somebody who's doing a two to two to six million dollar production do you normally say, start thinking, you know, this isn't a dubious thing to, I mean, if, unless you really want to shoot in Louisiana, just because it was, your project is actually legitimately a Louisiana project. Like it's about. And the beignets are so good. <laughs> yeah, they should be illegal actually. Yeah. <laughs> if you're talking about a 2 million or a 3 million or a $4 million project or all the way up to even something like a $6 million project, you, might you look at that? and say, here's the thing, you know, you're gonna spend another, you're gonna maybe get back a million, you may get back 25% of your budget, but you're gonna spend 50%, you're gonna increase your budget by 50% trying to get that 25%. I mean, is, is that kind of how the calculation works when you're talking about a two million or a three million or a $4 million film? relocating to another state for incentives? That's the process you'd go through. I wouldn't necessarily say that those are the numbers to apply to that process, but as a model, as a, uh, to explain, you know, the analysis that you're going to do, yes, that's what you're going to do. Um, and certainly the lower budget ones, are, you know, you, you absolutely want to do that analysis and you do want to go in a bit dubious, as you said, you know, and, and try and figure out whether or not it's worthwhile. And you, you got to add it all up. You got to do the math. Mm -hmm. It's not a guesswork thing. It's not safe. No, by any means. no. So um, one of the things we said that we were going to talk about in this event was um, the relationship between market value, which is what your film's likely to earn when you when you put it into distribution or when it goes um, out to market and the budget. Um, and I usually recommend that people get uh, film analytics done based on, you know, like if you go to um, Nash Information Systems, they usually, or Information Services, Nash Information Services, they usually do um, 20 comparable films. And they say these 20 comparable films that are the same budget, the same ca uh, cast level, the same, um, uh, produced in the same locations, etc., made, you know, this much money. So we forecast based upon these averages what your film's likely to make. So they give you sort of a heads up on what the budget, what the maximum, what the maximum the budget can possibly be is. Does that, do you think that makes sense? Um, how do you, how, when, when somebody comes to you and they say, this is the project that I want to do, and you go, you're looking at like a Western sci-fi comedy, 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> how do you actually determine, like, how do you tell people to determine what a rational budget is for a given project? I mean, do you tell them to go do film analytics or do you say, well, you know, it's whatever, like, how do you tell people to forecast what they should spend on a particular project? I totally agree with you on the film analytics. Um, and that's one of the things that I really enjoyed when I first met you and you started talking about those kinds of things um, that attracted me to you because it's a very rational way to approach things that most filmmakers that I run into don't think about and don't employ. Um, you know, it's a very, just deciding on the market value versus the budget from the get-go is a very necessary first step. And it's one that people tend to skip entirely. Um, a lot of times, you know, projects start off with just a blind love for the script. Um, and of course, a killer script is essential because without that, you have absolutely nothing. But once that hurdle is passed, it's very necessary to take off that creative hat and put on the business hat and, and keep it on for a while don't start running out and it's natural you know i mean it's very natural people want to start forging out and getting the talent getting the crew and getting the locations and all that fun stuff that starts really bringing those words to life and and making it a reality but that's a huge mistake um a lot of filmmakers take that script the second that the ink is dry and run straight to a line producer and say, you know, here, make me a budget for as low as this can possibly be made for. And that's a huge mistake. Yeah. The same script can possibly, quite possibly be done for, you know, indie gorilla style 200,000, or it could be done for 2 million. And the end result is going to be radically different mm -hmm. with the quality that you end up with. And if you don't know by looking at the analytics where you should be aiming, um, you could very well lose your investors all of their money. Mm -hmm. It's a very important thing, taking in investor money mm -hmm. and being responsible for it. And the very first responsible thing that you need to do is to make sure that you've done those analytics and that you're aiming where you ought to be aiming. And Yes, when you look at those analytics, you should be looking at your own genre and good luck with the Western comedy sci-fi. But put in there because that's good. I always find those good. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people know that they should be looking at they should be looking at comps and that they should be looking within their own genre and they should be looking fairly recently. But another mistake that people make is when they start making their pitch materials and everything is they build this nice little chart showing all of the anomalies, all of the great big breakout hits and the huge potential to earn money. And that's a mistake too. You, you really gotta you know, kind of ignore the highs, ignore the lows, take a really strong look at that entire genre you know, within recent times and look at the averages, means and mediums, okay? Because being a, being a successful film is not just being on variety, you know? Not every film is going to be a breakout hit. We know that. A lot more films are made that are not big breakout hits that you never hear about than the, the ones that you do. But that doesn't mean that the ones that you didn't hear about weren't 
a success in their own right. Because being a success means being in the black. It means taking in more money than you spent. It really is that simple. And if you can do that, then you can make your next film and your next film and keep building and keep growing. Um, but, I, you know, it does take prudent planning. A, a lot of, we all know that the motion picture industry is based a lot on public taste and that that taste changes and it's cyclical and it's unpredictable, but the, the temptation is to use that as an excuse and be like, you know, oh, it's a crystal ball. Who knows if the public's going to like it? Um, and use that as an excuse not to do the work. Mm -hmm. And that would be wrong. There, there is data out there and you should be looking at that data and you should be trying to figure out, you know, where you need to be in order to have a, a reasonable expectation of making a profit. Right. And I think one of the things that's, that's shocking is that people uh, routinely will decide, I want to make basically make it for less. You know, I, I have a $5 million film. I, I, I can make this film for, um, you know, under a million. And it's like, yeah, but you know what? Those, you know, those talky comedies, in order to do take your comedy and turn it into that thing, you're turning it into a talky comedy and they don't, at under a million, they don't usually make much money because you don't much often have good people. You don't have that. Don't have talent, which is you know, name talent, which is the thing that would draw people to a talk to comedy. So you're disabling your the, the sole thing that you can bring to that project because you're you don't want to you don't want to spend the money. And the thing is, investors know that. The thing, smart investors are even so stupid investors are like, you know, when I look at the set of films, none of none of them fall into this this thing that you've done, you know, you're saying you can make, you can make um, a great film for a great horror film for $500,000. And you're pointing to, you know, saw and paranormal activities and Blair Witch. Well, you know, I think it's been tried before. It doesn't always seem to be you know, so maybe we could aim a little higher. <laughs> and those films seem to do better than what we see with yeah, if, if you're looking at those numbers and you're looking at your genre and and you'll you'll start seeing patterns and if you see the pattern that a film in that genre produced for under one million routinely does not make its money back, you don't want to be in that category. <laughs> that is not where you want to be. <laughs> and you know the reasons for that obviously go deeper than just spending alone. You have to spend wisely. I mean, with bigger budgets, as you say, come better talent. They come, comes better marketing um, budgets at the end, you know, which is essential. You do need to market your film afterwards and you do need to plan ahead for that. A lot of people just, you know, try and use it all in production, just get it in the can and worry about the rest later or, you know, really forward thinkers get through post, but don't think about marketing. <laughs> and it is very important. Um, you do wind up with a lot of filmmakers that just think that, you know, if you can get through post and you get a distributor, then you're all good. The distributor is going to take it from there and there's no more costs. And that's not true. Um, that is absolutely not true. Definitely not in today's market. Um, there's a whole big process called deliverables, 
that are still going to be on your plate and that you're going to have to come up with the money for. And, <laughs> and a lot of times what your distributor is going to be offering you in marketing is not going to be enough to push your film to success. And you are going to still have to continue to back that film. And you are going to still have to continue to advocate for it and pump money into it to make it succeed. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, getting your data, data is just like everything else. You know, it's, it's caveat emptor, it's buyer beware. You know, the quality of the data that you get makes a big difference. And there's, there's a big, you know, temptation because it's free to go and get, you know, these databases that are out there that are free. Um, but you really need to analyze, your first step is gonna to be to analyze the source that you're getting your information from mm -hmm. and make sure that it's a reliable source. If you're on a database that is, has data that's being contributed by users, um, chances are that's not really reliable data. And then since we're in an internet society, what happens is it'll be on one internet and then uh, site and then it'll get picked up by another and picked up by another. So just because you see that same data repeated three times still doesn't make it credible data. I mean, it's like anything else. You do get what you pay for. And the subscription-based services are going to offer you better data than, than the free ones, um, they just are. And there's a very wide range of those services out there, some of which are so expensive that only studio systems can really afford them. Um, and that's unfortunate, but that is true. Is that uh, something is, uh, so you, do you help people with, um, you help people with uh, evaluating? So you, how quickly do you, do you, can you come into the project? I mean, I know that, um, some people only come to you when they have a budget ready to go because they think they want, they basically want to start putting together the package they're going to give investors. Do you, are, do you work with, um, do you work with producers earlier than that at the script stage where you're sort of at the ba very basic trying to figure out what their next step is? Like, do I need to get film analytics for this done? Do I need to get coverage for this done? Is the script good enough that I can get coverage for it? You know, I should get coverage for it now or should I take it back? Like when, as a as a line producer and as a producer when do you when do you normally start trying to work with people if you have the opportunity and on sort of on what terms do you work on a consulting basis at the beginning and then if they attach you you do more with them or do you always come on board and say from the very beginning that you're a line producer like how do you how do you structure relationships from the very beginning you know or like on what basis do you work usually well there's a lot of different ways to do it <laughs> and it's you know it varies a lot depending on the project and depending on the person and what their needs are and what their wants are and and how much they want you in the sandbox mm -hmm. um, and which hat you're wearing um, you know if if you're just looking for a straight-up line producer you know chances are you're not gonna bring them in you know in that early in the script stage but a producer you would. Mm -hmm. um, line producer isn't going to really kick in until you start to need to kick out numbers. Um, producer is going to have you know, more to offer earlier in the process. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Just grab a drink here real quick. Well, do, do, you, do you come on board as a, have you ever, you come on board as a consultant and, and, I, and do you also come on board as an executive yeah. producer? All Okay. All things are possible. 
Um, and when you contact a producer or, or a line producer, you know, I mean, they're actually pretty approachable. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> even the ones with the agents are, are, are pretty approachable. Um, you know, really, you just need to introduce yourself and, you know, say what your project is and what it is that you're looking for. And the, the number of different ways to structure, you know, that relationship um, are just as infinite as the number of ways that you can come up with making a deal that works for you, for your needs and for your project. Um, so, yes, if you're just looking for a line producer thing, you you might just want to hire a line producer to prepare a preliminary budget and that's it. Um, you might want the line producer to prepare the preliminary budget and attach all the way through to production, if at all possible, um, with the understanding that professional commitments are unknown um, when that time arises. Because when you're doing a preliminary budget, you're going to you know, obviously then go out to investors. You may or may not ever get investors. If you do get investors, then, you know, we don't know when that's going to be set and that person might have another commitment at that time, but keep them in the loop. So, you know, they can you know, try and manage that so that they can stay on. Uh, Cause if they've done the preliminary budget, then they're going to want to, it's, it's nice to keep that person on all the way through because they know that and they know what the research was to come to those numbers and they're going to be in the best position to get what they planned, you know, to actually happen. Um, if you're looking for a producer earlier in the, in the phases, then yeah, you might want to look more towards something uh, on a consulting basis. Mm -hmm. um, you might want to look at something on a retainer basis. Um, if you do something on a retainer basis, uh, usually, you know, you can negotiate a lower uh, day rate or a lower hourly rate or however you structure that. Um, producers and line producers don't like to chase people down for money. I mean, so <laughs> nobody does. Well, it's also it's a hassle. It's like, you cut, I mean, one of the things I really hate is when somebody says they want to, they, and I think it's actually, I come from a technical environment and you come from a legal environment. I think that mm -hmm. what, what they have in common is an understanding that the hours I spend chasing you is factored into how much, how many hours I'm actually working for you. So, you know, it's a difference between it's going to cost you $200 an hour if I have to like wait for you to pay me and hope you're going to pay me and chase you down. And it's going to cost you $150 an hour if you pay me. Exactly. Up so I, so I know I don't have to go chasing you down. And actually it's one of the things I really just about the film industry is there's a lot of people that ends up trying to do stuff for free all the time. And the problem with that is the advice that you get isn't good. It makes people not want to talk to you all the time. Like people, like people don't understand, well, you know, I want to work with this person, but I want to get the advice for free or the information for free. And it's like, you don't understand. It's not free to you. It's free to you. It's not costing you anything, but it's costing them something. Mm -hmm. In order to answer their, your questions fully, I have to spend time talking to you for a long time. And sometimes I have to ask you 3,000 questions in order to get the answer to make sense. So um, you're not going to get correct answers because you're not, you're not providing. But, and I don't understand how it happens. It's because people don't have a lot of money. But the problem is that it's like they keep themselves trapped in kind of an ugly limbo for year after year after year after year. Or getting bad advice after bad advice after bad advice because people don't want – because people – are just giving them the first answer that comes to mind. You know, it's like, well, 
you know, well, you should film in Louisiana because it's got the best rebates. They're not going to go into like 50 pages of document. You know, they're not going to talk for the next. They're not going to say, well, not if you're doing like a $1 million project because there's no way you'll meet the minimum required to film in Louisiana. (laughs) And where did you come up with a million dollars as your budget anyway? How do you know what your budget is? Which actually brings up another topic that I wanted to ask you about. I don't think most people understand even people who've worked in the industry don't understand. Can you give like a like a two minute quick overview of how you build a um, budget and then from the budget create the shooting schedule, the, the breakdown, the shooting schedule and the day out of days that you need before you can approach cast? Because you really can't approach cast until there's no point in approaching cast because you don't even know how many days you might need somebody. Right. You don't even have a shooting schedule. So can you sort of review the process by the down? Very much the nuts and bolts of what the line producer job is. Um, And I can get as deep on this as you want. (laughs) Just let me know. But, (laughs) you know, creating a budget and uh, for a script requires three steps. It's going to require three steps. And first, you're going to do your breakdowns. Um, You're going to sit down. You're going to have probably just an entire table full of different colored magic markers literally and you're gonna go through your script and you're gonna find every single element in there um and that's that's the process of breaking down and then you're gonna enter that in now i use there's a lot of software systems out there i personally really love the movie magic you know sweet it's very prevalent a lot of people use it i have scheduling and budgeting so when i make references to you know entering things in and whatnot it's with that in mind i i that's the program that i prefer and use. Um, so you, in that case, you go into your scheduling program and the first thing you have to do is enter in all of those elements. If the writer wrote in that script that so-and-so is strumming a guitar, that guitar needs to go in the script. That's a prop. You're going to need it. It's got to be there on that day. Um, every time a character appears, every time a background person appears, every time a car appears, every time you, know, you move locations, every single thing is, is going to have to be entered in. And you're going to need, in order to do that to start with, a shooting script. And the difference between a shooting script and, and, and a draft script is just the scene numbers. You've got to have the scene numbers in order to be able to put that breakdown in and for it to pop out you know, the, the right reports that you need scene by scene. Once you get all those elements in, then you can start working in the board. And all of your scenes are then going to be marked off in strips. And you can move those strips around um, based on where you need them. And initially when you're doing a preliminary budget, what you're going to do is you're going to arrange those in the most cost efficient manner possible. Um, it's never going to stay that way, (laughs) but it's, it's your dream schedule. (laughs) If life were perfect and you could do it your way, this is how you would do it. Because it would be the most cost-effective, most efficient way that you could do it. And usually that's going to be by shooting out your your locations. Um, Because moves are very expensive. Moves take time, moves take money. Um, The more you can just shoot out a location and then go to the next one, the better off you're going to be. And there's all kinds, there's a whole matrix going through your head the the entire time that you're doing this. Um, You know, you got to take into account things like, um, you know, an hierarchy of priority of of your elements, what's going to be the most expensive element, and all of those lovely union rules and and labor laws that you got to kind of keep in mind. (laughs) 
course, how long you can work people, um, you know, when you can start, when you can end, how much turnaround time is needed. Turnaround, in case people don't know, that's, that's from when you wrap at the end of the day until your call time the next day. And there's rules on that. You know, how much, how much rest time people must be given. And if you don't give them that amount of time, it's, it's a forced call and you're into extra wages. You're into, you know, overtime wages the second they come in on set the very next day until you give them adequate turnaround time. So you got to watch your, where your day scenes are and where your night scenes are. Um, you know, yeah, you can shoot day for night on certain interiors, but that takes time too. Um, you know, that's extra setup. That's, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you got to weigh all of those things out. There's these, these things are going through your head all the time as you're trying to create that perfect schedule that's going to comply with all of the rules and that's going to give you the most cost efficient way of setting that out as possible. Um, once you have your entire breakdown and your entire schedule done, um, then you can spit out those lovely reports called day out of days, um, which we like to call dudes. Um, which is the acronym day out of days. Dudes. <laughs> so <laughs> your dudes are going to tell you, um, now that you've got all that information in there, all those elements, how many days they're going to be needed and on exactly which days they're going to be needed. So those two things are very important to know because you do want to know, you know, like if you've got, um, you know, Bruce Willis on set, Bruce Willis is very expensive, obviously. You, if you only need Bruce Willis for three days and you have him there on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, um, chances are you're also going to have to pay for Tuesday and Thursday because those are whole days and non-consecutive employment at that level is probably not gonna be allowed. Um, so you want to then, you know, forget shooting out by location once you see that dude, you know, by cast, and that guy's really much more expensive than your location, now you're going to go back and you're going to tweak your schedule again to make sure and compress him down so that he's working consecutive days, and you shoot him out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and get him off the clock. You know, those kinds of things you're going to finesse. Even if you have to actually move the entire shoot to the whole, to the, to the new, to all three locations, or even if you have to set up duplicate base camps for, like, Sometimes the talent when you're shooting at two to ten million dollars, sometimes your name talent is going to be the most is so expensive that you'll do anything to make it so that you can ensure that he can shoot consecutive because it's yeah. it's so expensive to have him come back. Yep, absolutely. And whatever the most expensive element is, um, is going to take priority on your schedule. And then also once that most expensive element comes in, and if it's a talent, <laughs> and even if it's a location. When you can get that person based on their availability is going to move your schedule around as well, invariably. If they're just simply not available on the day that you want it, um, you're gonna move your entire schedule around to accommodate theirs um, and start moving things. And that's why I say the preliminary budget is never gonna stay the same. Because <laughs> once those elements start coming in and those elements have needs and wants and conflicts, you're going to start making accommodations and compromises in order to you know, serve the greater good and get what you need. Um, and try and manage, every move that you make is going to cost money. And that's the line producer's job while you're in that process is to try and manage all of those moves and all of those changes, you know, without breaking budget. Um, and sometimes that means sacrificing on, on, in one person's department in order to accommodate another. 
that's kind of the way it goes. Um, <laughs> sorry, art department or whoever you've just stolen out of their <laughs> out of their fund. <laughs> but we need Bruce another day, you know. Sorry. <laughs> so you know, once you have your budget, um, you know, all queued up, you've got you've got your breakdowns, you've got your schedule, you've got your dudes. You're going to start entering those things into your budget. Um, you can't do your budget without those things because there's obviously, you know, elements that are needed that are, you know, part of the mathematical equation. <laughs> you have to know what the price of something is, and then you have to know how, how many days you need it in order to know how much you're going to pay for that thing. Mm -hmm. um, there's no other way to do it. Um, so when you're, so when you're, a couple of things come to mind. So when you're doing the budget, does it, do you, one of the reasons that you need to know sort of from the producer what the you know based upon what the information that he got during the film analytics process one of the reasons you need to know sort of a ballpark budget is because you really can't do the um budget itself until you know for example what schedule you're working from monsag and iatsi and the teamsters because uh, you know a uh, low budget you know, a SAG low budget feature has different cat pricing for talent than uh, a SAG uh, a SAG basic agreement project. So is that yeah. that a lot of the rules differ? Sometimes, you know, on some of those lower budget contracts, non consecutive employment is allowed. Mm -hmm. Um, and without a penalty, you're not going to have to pay for those whole days. You know, I mean, what contract level you're on with every union matters. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you've got to keep those rules in mind. They do affect your budget. Mm -hmm. and, and the higher tiers, they, they call them tiers, um, you know, are, are going to be more expensive. They're definitely going to be more expensive. Um, also, one thing I think I don't know if I was talking to it about talking to you about it, but I know I know that when you're working with kids, they can only if the kids under a certain age they can only work four hours. But then, and then also there's the issue of if you have kids and there's some any kind of God help you should there be any kind of stunts involved or even just stunts at all as a whole thing. Yes. Those issues um, also come in. Is that something as a line producer that you can look at and you can go, oh, that's a shotgun blast that costs two days, <laughs> you know, or that, you know, like that's something as a line producer, you have to look at, mm -hmm. you absolutely have to look at uh, all those things have to be looked at and all those things have a cost associated with them. And you do want to foresee those um, ahead of time and budget for them accordingly. And yes, you know, minors are an issue. Um, as far as how long you can have them on set and therefore how many days you're going to need them. You know, if you could, you might be able to shoot an adult out, you know, in one day and work them a 12 hour day and be done. But if you can only have that kid on set for four hours or whatever their age level is and the number of hours that you can have them on set differs depending on how old they are. Um, and it's not just, you know, on set, but it's also, it's a mixture of uh, how long they can be on set, how long they can be shooting, how long they have uh, mandatory rest period and how long they have school time. Um, you have to have a set teacher there. And uh, if it's a, if it's an infant or a toddler, you have to have a set nurse there. Um, you know, these things all have to be factored in. Every one of them has a cost associated with it. Stunts. Yes. A very big thing. Um, and you're going to want to know, I know what those stunts are and how they're going to be approached. And, 
the way that you shoot them out can be radically different, radically different, um, depending on how you approach that stunt. And knowing what you have overall for a budget is often going to shape how you do things. If you have five million, you know, versus you know five hundred thousand, you're going to do things very, very differently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have more options. When you when you the other thing I wanted to ask about is so because I, I heard about somebody who was a SAG member, and they do actually so. SAG has rules. What you think is a stunt and what SAG thinks is a stunt are not <laughs> exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like SAG kind of tends to think of even a pretend fight mm -hmm. is, a, is a, something that requires choreography, which means that they expect there to be a stunt coordinator mm -hmm. who's, going to walk, who's going to be there to walk people through the action and then be there to watch the stunt performed. So is that when is that something that you can tell by looking at the screen uh, at the screenplay you can go is it do you automatically do you consult with the writer to say okay so is this guy just hitting this guy one time and it's just or are we talking about somebody falling to the ground because that's a whole different thing right mm -hmm. so having to fall to the ground because they've been struck is different than somebody you know the kind of slap across the face you might get in a 1950s movie, right? So do you, is that something that you ask the screenwriters about when they're bringing you the screenplays or is it something that you guess at? Like, how do you figure, it seems like there's an infinite number of decisions. How do you figure out, how do you guess? Like, is it, do, do you just, it seems like a really hard job actually. Some things, like I say, you can tell just by looking. Some mm -hmm. things you cannot, and you are going to have to ask for some insight on that. Now, Sorry, writers, but once the director comes on board, <laughs> the director's going to say what that's really going to be mm -hmm. when you shoot it. Um, but if you don't have a director on board or if the writer isn't going to be your writer-director mm -hmm. and you're trying to work on a preliminary budget, if you're back in that stage, you know, yes, your, your writer's your only source for insight on how do you see this, mm -hmm. you know, happening. And, and that's where you're going to go for answers. Mm -hmm. you know, understanding that if it's not a writer-director, by the time it gets to the director, it may become a whole different thing. Mm -hmm. The director may, the director almost always has a different creative vision that they'd like to, mm -hmm. you know, express. So, <laughs> and I guess one other thing while we're talking about difficult things, stunts, kids, and animals. So that's kind of another thing. So when I was, um, you actually tend to count every animal in a project as if it were. Yeah. <laughs> they all count. <laughs> Every one of those little animals counts. <laughs> they are all money and they are all time. Right. Um, every animal is going to have an animal handler, you know, that goes along with them. Every animal is going to have a cost, um, you know. And, you know. and one of the things you mentioned to me, which I hadn't thought about before, is that is that not all animals even animals that are otherwise copacetic animals, not all animals can deal with the lights and can deal with the, just because on a, on a Yeah, I mean, that's something that I tend to deal with more on the much lower budget um, indie films is people that, you know, think that they can cut corners that way. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you know, I have a dog or my buddy's got a dog, you know, we'll bring that to set, you know, he'll be fine. Um, so, no, 
no, you really can't do that. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why, um, you know, you do not, even the owner can't possibly say how that animal is going to react on set. This is a situation that they've never been in before. There's, there's lights, there's people, there's commotion, you know, they uh, could bark incessantly. I've got one barking right now. I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> As a matter of fact, right on cue. <laughs> we have Foley for this, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, they start blowing takes, uh, you know, because they're not trained and they're barking, you know, through your take when they're not supposed to or they don't walk when they're supposed to or where they're supposed to or god forbid they get really uh freaked out and they bite an actor now you've got a liability situation now you've got an insurance claim now you've got big issues or, or even if they just get hurt themselves because i think that's more the issue is that you've got a dog that doesn't necessarily i mean yeah and cats who can control a cat on the best of days Right. <laughs> Anytime you have something like that in a scene, you know you've got to budget extra time for that because even the trained animals are not always going to perform on cue. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not always going to have a great day. They do have to be trained. If they're doing something in particular, the animal handler is going to have to train them to do that thing before you shoot. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're going to be thrown into a new environment and they may or may not. If it's not a, a, a well-rehearsed, well-known you know, a trick, if it's a new trick for them, they may or may not do it on cue. Um, we had rattlesnakes on set one time. And yeah. It, can you train rattlesnakes? Because I wouldn't think that was even possible. They say you can. <laughs> they told me they could. <laughs> well, that's and they brought a backup rattlesnake even, yeah. you know? <laughs> we had... Let's just think about that. Because I think one would be more than sufficient. <laughs> So yeah, we had, you know, a, a sheet of plexiglass and the, the, the shot that, that they really wanted was, again, it was a kid who was supposed to be in a desert who falls and of course a rattlesnake is nearby and strikes at him. You know, well, you can't actually do that on set. So, you know, kid offset, rattlesnake onset, you know, put up the piece of plexiglass and try and get the rattlesnake to strike at the plexi. Rattlesnake's name was Darth Vader. Darth Vader was having no part of that that day. <laughs> probably, probably had run its head into the plexiglass more than once and didn't like it. And don't you have the SPCA on set as well? I mean, they're probably, how, how long are they even going to go along with the whole striking, picking on a snake and making it try to strike? Believe it or not, Having the Humane Society um, on your set is somewhat optional. Really? Um, it is very highly recommended. And if you want that little thing at the end of your end credits that says no animals were harmed in the making of this film and the nice little logo, you know, that you complied with the Humane Society and everything, then yes, you do reach out to them. And yes, you should. And that is the proper way to do things. And that is obviously the way I like to do things. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but um, no, there were there were no actual well, Humane Society representatives there for the for Darth Vader that day. Yeah. <laughs> well, but we did have to have anti-venom on set. We did have to have a you know knowledgeable set medic on set, and we had to call the local hospitals and put them on alert that we were shooting in the nearby vicinity with a venomous snake 
in the event we had to immediately transport. Cool. That sounds like totally the funnest set. I don't know why. You know, you know these things, you know, I would totally have gone to that. And and these are all things you got you've got to think about um, as best as possible. And some of these things you're never going to be able to foresee until you actually get into production and you actually start booking your things. You know, I mean, we had a set one time where <clears throat> you know we had live gunfire that was going to be well. I mean, it was prop gunfire. I mean, shooting blanks. I mean, it happened on sets with live gunfire. That that's a whole different show. This one, they were prop guns, blanks. Mm -hmm. They make noise just like a real gun. You know, they make a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. um, and we were out in what, you know, looks like the middle of nowhere, but it's not the middle of nowhere. There's ranch property around. And within hearing distance, there was a woman who owned horses. So, you know, we did, you know, reach out to her and let her know in advance that we would be shooting at this particular time and firing gunshots. Um, and as part of our permit process, we actually had to get her to sign off and give us permission. Um, as a neighbor that would be affected by this. Uh, and uh, in that particular situation, she said, I have horses and those horses are easily spooked by that. I, I will sign off on this, but only if you give me your personal guarantee that you, know, you tell me what time it's going to be before that scene comes up, you call me and you let me know, you know 15 minutes ahead of time because I am going to need to go out to the, to the corral and be with the horse or the horse will ram itself into the gate. It will ram itself into the wall. It will harm itself. Um, and I've got to be out there. And you know, these, these are all extraneous things that, that come along with, oh, the horse gallops across the field. <laughs> you know, or <laughs> so-and-so fires into the air. A lot, a lot of ripple activity happens. Um, mm -hmm with those events and the more experience you have and the more you can foresee those kinds of things you know the more you can plan for those in advance and know they're going to have time associated with them they're going to have cost associated with them right and it also lets you give the also lets the, uh, the production team have a time set back and go is the scene worth it or yeah. you know, we can have somebody shoot in the air, and we can add the sound in sound and light in uh, post production, so we don't actually have to have that noise. Or mm -hmm. we can use squibs, or we can use machine guns that are completely silent, and we can add the noise after the fact. So it, it, yeah. and those things impact the cost of the project um, in ways that are otherwise not known. And those are things that become more and more and more important the, m the larger your production gets. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that we cover all of the topics because we're getting into the time zone. Um, the, um, if you were to, if you were to, um, give advice to, um, people that are currently working on producing a project they think is almost certain to be into this budget, when you, when would you actually recommend that they reach out to a line producer or reach out to start talking about these issues? Do you think that? I, some people have said, you know, the, your first, the first thing you should be working on is making sure that the script is perfect. But uh, do you think that that's true? Get the perfect script and then bring it to somebody like you or, or an executive producer or um, an expert to help you work through the rest of the process? Or do you think it makes sense when you're in sort of your final rough draft stage that you bring the screenplay to you so that you can highlight the stuff that you can say, you know, this scene right here. I don't think that if 
I don't know how much it's adding to your production value, but I do, I can tell you how much it's adding to your cost. Mm -hmm. okay. Particularly if you're on a lower budget um, and you know you want to be on a lower budget, then you might want to bring in a line producer to spot that kind of thing at that stage, you know, before you actually commit to doing the entire budget to just at least consult and do that kind of a spot check. Um, things like, you know, always oh, stands in front of the Hollywood sign. Well, guess what? You got to pay for that. Um, or, you know, <laughs> they're down at Santa Monica Pier. You know, you would be shocked at how much it costs to shoot at Santa Monica Pier. Every single one of those private business owners gets paid when you shoot at the pier. Um, and that adds up real quick. And if that's really just a landmark shot in a montage scene, do you really need the Santa Monica Pier? Or is there something else that you could be shooting that you know really is going to say LA without the price tag? Um, you know, those are things that we can help with. Mm -hmm. um, but those are also things that may just get changed in production. Mm -hmm. So and in, at that stage, you have no say. Right. So, uh, so you're saying you get more creative control the sooner that you address those kinds of issues. If someone as a writer, if you're concerned about that, how much your script is going to get changed in the shooting process, then yeah, you may want to finesse those things earlier um, and make those choices yourself. One, I guess one of the, the I guess as we, I'm going to take questions in just a minute. If you have questions, please send an email to nancy.fulton at yahoo.com. That's nancy.fulton at yahoo.com. One more thing I wanted to touch base on is you actually, um, you actually were a work, you know, were an actor or acted. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask, do you think whether, do you think that that has, um, and in addition to your legal background, sort of being a bit of a advantage in production, do you think that being an actor uh, and having worked professionally as an actor gives you any particular um, advantage when you're actually creating, working as a line producer? Or does it, do you think that it, it doesn't really translate into um, any specific benefit? I do think that there, that I use, that's one of the many filters that I pass in through information through. And so that does tend to give me a little bit of insight that colors my perception of how things should be. Um, do I think a line producer needs that experience? No. Um, does it come into play for me? It does. Um, you know, I can, I can put myself in those shoes. Um, and I can think through, you know, a little more intimately, uh, what it's going to be like in that situation, uh, for that actor and what that actor's going to need. Um, you know, outside of what the rules say you have to give them. Mm -hmm. You know, because um, there's a difference between meeting the minimum requirements of what the union tells you you must do and actually creating a good conducive working environment that elicits the best performance out of the actor. Mm -hmm. um, and you may voluntarily want to go a little further with some of what you're providing and um, what accommodations you're giving, you know, in, in order to get that better performance on screen. Mm -hmm. It's worth it because mm -hmm. everything that matters is what goes on that screen. Mm -hmm. And the more you can funnel the, the money, the time and everything to what ultimately winds up on that screen, 
the, the better your product's going to be, the more saleable it's going to be, the more profits you're going to make, you know, and the more, you know, people are going to like it. And and one of the one of the advantages that you um, as a line producer you you can bring a seasoned line producer with a lot of credits is that you can bring when people first start reaching out to you when they say I need a casting director you've had experience with a number of casting directors you go this guy actually made problems stop happening and this guy I would never like I would never work with that guy again that guy was horrible I just don't like that guy <laughs> it's a small town LA is you know I mean people do get to know you know who's who and and whatnot after a while um like, location, uh, like location managers like this guy says he this guy will promise you the world but he never comes through and this other guy he always gives you two or three options for a good project so do you you do you bring crew with you as well as bringing your the I mean is that like something you would expect a line producer to bring with them to a project is that yeah. that you, you, you would hope that I mean, I'm dating myself, but you would hope that they have a good Rolodex <laughs> and that they have, you know, trusted crew and trusted vendors and, you know, can get, you know, special deals and all that kind of thing, you know, that help make the project run smoother and stretch the dollars farther. Um, and, you know, getting those reliable people is the best way to do that. Um, sometimes the lowest price is not going to be the cheapest in the end if it costs you time if it costs you headaches if it takes away you know from the other resources in order to constantly have to pick up the slack for that person or you know fix problems that they're bound to create then you know you might want to pay a little more to get the right person that's not going to cause those problems so if somebody has to, so most of the time on a budget over the over $2 million, particularly if you start going over $5 million, you're going to need to have a completion bond. Is that something that the line producer gets or is that something that the UPM gets or how does that actually happen? Like who qualifies to make Not it? Not the UPM. No, that's going to be the producer and the line producer working together to get that. Well, um, so yeah. you can't, it's not going to, you need to have a complete, to get the completion bond, which basically is so for those people that don't know, a completion bond is a doctor is a, a form of insurance that says that given this script, given this budget, given the set of parameters, um, this film will be completed. And if necessary, the completion bond company will step in to complete the project and will fire even the name talent. They will fire everybody they have to fire to make that thing go. So yes. then in order to get one, how much, what's the percentage that you usually specify in, a, in your budget to set aside for getting a completion bond on a like a five million dollar project is it five percent is it ten percent or does it vary i'm going to do outreach every single time every single time i'm going to go and try and find you know a real number that i can put in there those things do change mm -hmm. they change from year to year they change you know all the time um and so i'm always going to try and go out and get the most recent information available and you know obviously once you put that number in there if you're not funded yet if you're not in production or anything um you know maybe a year or two down the road before you shoot and that number may change by then it, it may no longer be available for for the number that you selected have, um, have you ever worked with a bond company i mean you've rescued productions before so they brought you in because you know they've done other whatever crazy person do you usually get brought in by a producer or do you get brought in by a, a bond company Producers. Really? Yeah. So they, they realize they've run their truck off the road and then they call you in and they go, could you please come and make it so this all gets better? 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've had a number of those. Um, those are always interesting calls. Of, we lost our line producer. How did you lose your line producer? <laughs> did you, whose turn was it to watch him? <laughs> you know? <laughs> he's, he's, he had him. And he was yeah, and he got away, <laughs> you know, and, and you know the story that you get is not ever going to be the whole story. <laughs> so you always want to take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> and, you know, you're coming in and the place is on fire and you're running into the burning building. Um, and most sane people don't run into the burning building. Um, but yeah, I've done that on more than one occasion. I always swear afterwards I'm not going to do it again. And <laughs> probably not any fun, actually. It probably so it sounds actually awful. I, I wouldn't like it because I, I don't like it when because people are already mad. Um, let's go ahead. Oh yeah. Yes. In any case, um, what? Uh, so feel, everybody should feel free to reach out to Christina. I want to go ahead and uh, try to clean this up to um, tomorrow or the next day and try to make it available for her to approve, and then I'll make it available to you guys. And if you have any questions, you're always welcome to send me an email at nancy.fultonyyahoo.com. I apologize for turning this into a two-hour and eight-minute session, but we haven't had an opportunity to actually interview somebody that does exactly what Christina um, does at this early in, in the process. And since most of us are developing, um, most of the people that come to my groups are developing projects, we're in a position where they need to be able to get early answers. And Christina, Christina's specific job starts in pre-production sorry starts in development and packaging and goes all the way yeah. um, so it's like there's a lot of topics to address so i hope you guys forgive me for making it as long as it has been and you too actually Christine. i don't i don't have a problem with it i can go on as deep on these things as you want we could go on forever but <laughs> we will not <laughs> it's like the rattlesnake's gonna stay with me there for a while <laughs> darth vader <laughs> Anyway, so thank you very much, everybody, for coming. If you have any questions, please send me an email at nancy.fulton at yahoo.com. And if I can be of service to you or Christina can be of service to you, please do reach out, okay? Thank you so much. I very much enjoyed seeing you. Christina, you are to die for. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>